If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. It's a new season, and on this edition of Confessions of a Marketer, we're talking with Beth Comstock to Imagine It Forward. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Season 2 of Confessions of a Marketer. On Episode 29, I've got Beth Comstock in for a discussion about her new book, Imagine It Forward, and what it was like to be the CMO of GE through some turbulent times. Beth will be with me for two episodes, and we'll get to that chat in a moment. First, a look at what we have coming up over the next several weeks. We've got Beth this week and next, and then we'll chat with Ford's first head of social, the raconteur himself, Scott Monty. Scott and I recorded our chat a couple of weeks ago, and I can't wait to get this one out. He wrote a post all the way back in the early days of summer that really caught my eye on the need for corporate empathy. We talk about that, and then he recites a little poem he wrote about it. In the weeks to come, we'll have Jacques von Niekerk, the CEO of Wonderman Data, back to look at the aftermath of GDPR for marketers. Peter Horst will be on to discuss marketing in the age of fake news. Duncan Chappell will be back here to discuss PR agencies and how they can boost analyst relations. And there's a lot more planned, so stay tuned. Okay, on to Beth Comstock. Beth's career path spans a number of important roles. Storyteller, the chief marketer, to GE vice chair. She worked for almost 30 years at GE and led the acceleration of new growth and innovation, built the company's digital and clean energy transformation, and seeded new businesses and enhanced its brand value and inventive culture. Quite a feat. When I heard she had a book coming out, Imagine It Forward, I knew I wanted to have her on the pod. We had a wide-ranging discussion. On today's episode, we talk about her taking on the CMO role, how confidence plays a role, and how she dealt with feedback, plus how she got GE to adopt a marketing mind. I enjoyed the discussion a lot, and I hope you will too. So let's get to it. Beth Comstock, it's a pleasure to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You took over as G's first CMO in more than 20 years, what, back in 2003, I think it was, and there was a lot on the line. Yep. As you describe in your book, the pressure wasn't just to do marketing as a CMO would, but also to help jumpstart revenue growth. So how did you approach that opportunity? 
And looking back on it, what did it teach you? Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's a good question. I um, I had joined GE coming over from the NBC side, um, and Jeff Immelt was new in his job and said, hey, you know, his strategy for the company was I'm going to grow the company um, organically, like from within, um, not just through acquisition. That was something he was prioritizing at the time. He looked around, he said, we have good salespeople, we have really good engineers, we're missing marketing. And he had started his career in marketing at GE, so he had a sense of what he was looking for. And he said, I want, I want you to lead marketing and I, wanna, I want the function to be about new growth, about growing revenue from new sources. So it was unusual because we hadn't had a marketing department in a couple of decades at GE. Um, and most people at that time in our company, and I think in many um, B2B companies, think of marketing as what you do at the end. Um, it's the stories you tell. It's the trade shows and outreach to you know customers. Uh, and that is part of it. But what we were saying is we were bringing marketing to the beginning of the process, to say marketing is about actually living up to its name. It's about the markets, where the market's going. And uh, it was a bit of a surprise for the culture at that point to, to one, see marketing be, um, be elevated in that way, and then to have marketing... Um, you know, ha- have uh, revenue as part of the part of the job. A lot of confusion, sales, engineering. Um, I, I learned a lot from that. I mean, uh, I, uh, I I learned that um, that you have to create examples. You can't just say to people, "Hey, this is what marketing does." We had to create examples, and so I think that for us, the biggest thing we did was we created um, something we called imagination breakthroughs, and that was a way to show how we could drive new revenue growth. So they were they were proof of concepts, if you will, for growth. Um, and that it really wasn't until people could see what we were talking about that they could say, oh, okay, I see what you mean now about marketing. Like providing case studies almost. Yeah, real life case studies. I mean, I'll give you, they, they ranged everywhere from, I mean, they were they were innovation ideas, but they were very much targeted. We, we set a goal we want for GE, this was relevant. I mean, for different companies, they have different targets. But within GE, the GE universe, we said we'd like $100 million of new revenue in three to five years. Now, financial services, maybe that was 18 months. For aviation, maybe that was five to seven years. And um, and so it was jump-starting. It, it was, and we said, take an existing technology and find a new application for it. Mm-hmm. Um, take a market that you're uh, that you're not serving and figure out how to serve it. Go after a new customer segment. So we were very deliberate in the kinds of what we were calling innovation. It was really market back innovation. It was less, hey, let's come up with a new product. Right. Um, some of that eventually came after we started this. One of my favorite examples, and this to me illustrated what marketing was trying to do in our energy business. Um, the, we, had, we had gone out and hired chief marketing officers for each of our business units, and the CMO of Energy, been with one of his big proof of concepts, was we're just going to resegment the market, our markets in the Middle East. We're going to, you know, go after new customers and old customers with a new mix of products. And he was able to show a path to two hundred million dollars of incremental revenue. That got people's attention. Sure, it was not, you know, it was maybe redeploying some salespeople. But it wasn't coming up with new products. It was just redeploying how we went to market. That is, that was really important to say this is what we mean. And it's a concrete kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. One startling thing in here as I was reading the book is that early on in your tenure, Jeff Immelt took you aside and said, I need you to be more confident. 
And in the book, you provide some insight into the personal challenges you set for yourself after he told you that to help you become more confident. Can you share those with the audience and give some background on them? And also, was it hard to hear that feedback? Or was it kind of good and reassuring to hear that? No, it was hard to hear that feedback because I think many of us, I certainly can speak for myself in that, you know, we kind of put on our acting, we put our, yeah. we're a little bit of an actor at work, we put on our game face, we're like, hey, I, I'm cool, I got everything under control. I'm super and here confident. We, yeah, huh? exactly. I got it. I show up. <laughs> And here my boss was calling me out and saying, like, what are you doing? Like, I need you to show up more. I, I get, get it in one-on-one. I'm backing your ideas. I'm, I, I see the energy you bring, but yet you're showing up in some of these meetings and you're not putting it out there. I need your perspective. I need you to be more confident about that. And so one, I really, um, I guess my first impulse was like, oh, no, he's figured me out. Like, how did he (laughs) see that? I thought I was a pretty good actor. I was doing my best Meryl Streep. Come on, what are you doing? (laughs) And my my second was, oh, you know, I felt bad, right? I felt bad for him. They had to say it. And then my third, I think when I thought about it, was grateful just to have worked for someone who was able to give me some feedback of what he saw um, getting in my way. Look, I've struggled with confidence pretty much my whole career, and especially then, I I was still early in my marketing role. I came into marketing with a non-traditional background. I had grown up in NBC in the promotion area, but I hadn't been classically trained as a marketer, so I had reason, you know, to question my confidence. I'm going forward into something. I don't doubt my energy, my smarts, my ability to learn, but I didn't have the deep expertise. So in some ways, you know, I put myself in a situation and he had promoted me into that situation uh, as well. So so I know that was playing certainly in my mind. And so what did I do? I mean, partly I just I it's been my kind of um, recipe, I guess, for getting myself out of those situations that are holding me back and making myself take change seriously. It's just small steps, small challenges. And so I. Um, I would challenge myself to, okay, next meeting, and usually they were meetings with tough tough business Mm -hmm. leaders who were questioning marketing. And so I needed to do my homework. I needed to um, come in with points of view, which normally I did, but I I just needed to make sure I uh, thought ahead and planned uh, for meetings where I maybe wasn't about marketing, but I had a point of view. I made sure I would come in and ask a question. Um, in a new way. I bring my marketing expertise to bear, not try to be an expert in gap accounting or engineering. Um, And I think that is actually, I think what what was one of the challenges we had with marketing in general at GE is because it, at the time it was such a technical, it still is a technical engineering company. And there was this sense, well, if you, if you haven't been an engineer, how can you possibly market what we're doing? And so in some ways, I had to also mirror a path for my colleagues as well to say, like, we're marketing, deg on it. Like, we, ha- we have expertise. We can bring in our insights from the market. We can bring the trends. We can bring the voice of the competitor, of the customer. And so I think having that group of chief marketing officers also helped. I think we reinforced each other because we were all probably suffering a little bit from um, a lack of confidence in a culture that didn't quite know what to make of us. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. 
donate blood, and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. So it was good to kind of be called out on that. Yeah, I'm big on, yeah. I guess that's what a good manager does, right? Yeah, I um I think a good manager um gets to know the the people who work for them. They know their styles. Another thing Jeff did that was very helpful for me along those lines is I'm I'm a more quiet, reserved person, introvert. And in addition to sort of the confidence of like, you know, say it with conviction, you know, just don't be so quiet all the time. And he would have a habit of calling on me if I didn't say something. Mm. Um to remind people that he valued my opinion and also to prompt me to say something. <laughs> um and so I think I think I've appreciated that uh, in him and others when when they make space space for that. Um, and I think the other thing is just feedback. I um, I guess if I look at the trajectory of my career and what I've learned as a manager, team leader, it's the role of feedback. And um, I was fortunate. I worked with Jack Welch for several years. He was very candid. And I think I've had to really learn to give good feedback and ask for feedback. I remember the first time I got my um, my first kind of 360 evaluation, and it was mixed. And you know, I, yeah. being a perfectionist, I go right to the negative things. But um, a great HR person I was working with at the time said, "You need to go to your team. You need to tell them you've accepted their feedback and that you need help. Mm-hmm. That you need their help." And when when it was the feedback I got was as being too abrupt, and people felt their idea wasn't heard. You need to say to them when when I'm doing that, can you let me know? Yeah, I'm gonna make it. And so I always it was really hard, but I always learned a lot from that those moments where um, people were holding you accountable with their feedback, and they wanted to make you be better. So um, I usually appreciated the spirit with which it was offered. Yeah, and uh, often that 360 feedback isn't really truly 360, is it? It's often just kind of 180, and it doesn't really get into that loop so that you can then go back to your people and say, okay, help me improve. Yeah, exactly. I love the way you're saying that, right? How do you really make it 360? That's why I think right now uh, in the age we're living in with just the constant influx of data, I'm excited for team leaders because never have we had a chance to get so much real-time feedback. What I'm worried about for all of us who lead teams and projects of people is um, many of us aren't trained on how to deal with that mm-hmm. feedback. Mm-hmm. And um, and so just getting the data isn't enough. How do you coach people through it? How do you ask for help? I think we don't train people on that. Well, in, in the era of Glassdoor, where anonymous feedback is you know rampant about it, pretty much every company, having solid internal feedback is almost a requirement, I would think. It is. And you know what I don't understand? I mean, this is as a marketer, you just you want as much, you know, feedback as you can get. But what I don't understand in companies is even still today thinking an annual employee survey is good enough. Uh, as a team leader, you want ongoing feedback. uh, And you want to, there's a time for anonymous, but there's also a time for face to face so you know what to do about it anonymous feedback is maybe directionally helpful in the sense that then you can go ask people to get more specific but you can't address it if you don't know where it's coming from well it causes discomfort i think that's why it's why it's kind of uh, frowned upon but uh, it's essential it seems to me 
It is essential. And um, I, I, I love the book from Kim Scott on radical candor. I think that is something I uh, I found in my, you know, the past couple of years of my my leadership tenure. I would give it a lot out to people just because, again, that especially people just starting out in their career, like you don't know what to do with that feedback. H- how do I do with that? I thought her book was particularly good in that. The, the great hedge fund company Bridgewater is all about that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it can be a really uncomfortable place to be, but it's hugely successful. Yeah, it's interesting. I uh, I think it's an interesting culture to study that one. Um, yeah, and I think it's I think increasingly everyone's going to have to figure that feedback part out of their job. All right. So you also write about, and we talked a little bit about uh, GE adopting a marketing mind and you pushing on that. In other words, kind of thinking about the markets more intensely, living in the markets, as you call it. But it also means being more open as an organization. And maybe we were actually just talking about that just now. Can you walk me through that and what it means to kind of go weird? <laughs> yeah, a couple of <laughs> thoughts there. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it was really just if you're going to live in the if you're going to be about marketing and this idea of a market mind, meaning just from the outside in, what happens in too many companies um, is we get good at something and we think we know all the answers and, you know, we create these great products because we can. And there's a time for that. Don't get me wrong. But it's not always the right way. And what sometimes happens, especially in, in te- heavy tech companies, is things get over-engineered. Features that customers don't want to pay for. Kinds of products that aren't matched to where the customers are going. To One of my, uh, I think, a best example I could give you was work we had seen in G's healthcare division, uh, which was, you know, they manufacture MRIs. Mm -hmm. And there was a growing trend in the market of people, we people getting larger. Our body sizes were, our girths were big. I've been in one of um, those and it's uncomfortable. (laughs) I can tell you that. It's very uncomfortable. And, uh, and they're set up for a certain body size. But as people were getting larger around the middle, they couldn't fit. So making that even more uncomfortable And some competitors were recognizing this and making the holes, the donut holes of the MRI bigger. But there was a price and that's a little bit of degradation happened in the image. And so uh, G was late to do that because they didn't want to give up the degradation of what, what was happening, even if it was infinitesimal. And that's where I think the market mind comes in. Uh, So we lost market share. We lost a position because we missed out on a growing trend that was happening. And by the time we figured it out, we were already behind in that. So that was those were the kind of examples we'd use to say, see, this is what we mean. And so we really went on a journey to embed more kind of outside in people, especially globally. And that was um, uh, that is also what happens. You tend to have global product and you think, well, I'll make it once and we'll just sell it everywhere. And you get a small piece of the market, but you're not getting all the use cases, especially healthcare was one where you had hospitals in India or China that had different issues, uh, affordability, access to electricity in rural markets, things like that. And it wasn't until you went and had sort of observational marketers who could live with doctors, live with nurses, understand what they did and marry that with the product teams that's that's what I mean by by market mind and and sort of going weird is just you have to get teams that go out in the really early fringe things before things become mainstream. I mean, for us in the early days of um, 
the the sort of move to new manufacturing, 3D printing. We had to go to some pretty crazy places, crazy for GE, right. uh, maker spaces where people were you know, using all kinds of spare parts to create solar panels or uh, small, you know, power generation off the grid to start to say, wait a minute, this is far more accessible. People can do this in a much different way in markets like Africa and India. What is this going to do to us in the future? How do we partner more with people who are, are doing this in a faster, perhaps better way? For the right application. So you do have to kind of go to these places that at first blush are like, well, what does that have to do with us? And kind of hang around and, and see a path there. So it means kind of going beyond your own internal R&D lab or going to, you know, somewhere other than one of the research universities, maybe looking in in odd places for new things. Exactly. And I mean, I, I used to think of our, really, I, I felt our marketing team was about, there was a part of our marketing effort that needed to be market-based R&D. Mm -hmm. um, we need to test new business models, new commercial models, new applications. That's what marketing should be doing. It's sometimes taking existing products and just looking for new applications or new segments. That was market R&D. And that was a new concept for us at GE. But it meant you had to go places. Like I remember... Um, you know, going with um, one, another story, a lot of this in healthcare, but um, going, uh, I did this quite a bit, would go with the teams to, um, to rural Indonesia to understand how midwives worked mm. because you couldn't, there, there weren't many doctors and there were a lot of women giving birth not near a hospital center. And so how, how did mid midwives work? How would they work with a really simple piece of technology? Could we come up with something that was so simple? It was like red light, green light, mm -hmm. red light. This mother has to go to the hospital, green light. You can deliver the baby here. Um, and it was only with sort of working with these midwives for six months or so, could the team understand what kind of product they needed to develop. That's the, those were what we that was what we were trying to um, try. That's what we needed to do. Kind of boots on the ground intelligence, yeah. rather than just it is. You know, making a decision from an office in Manhattan. And then there's a whole series of things that have to happen after that. It's you know it's one thing to have the insight. Oh yeah, midwives actually could you know are delivering more babies, and we need technology to help them. But then you're making a whole market out of it, and then you get into regulation and government partnerships, and so. You're, you're really embedding your market-based teams with all the different stakeholders to figure out how do we start to create some momentum so this can actually happen. I really want to thank Beth for being my guest on today's show on part two of this discussion. Coming next week, Beth and I talk about planning and a tool she uses, 3D budgeting, to make planning more effective. That's next week. should be live on September 26th. This episode of Confessions of a Marketer was written, produced, and edited by yours truly. T. Jordan of A-Class Productions wrote the theme music. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Reed Edwards Global Inc., and this episode is copyright 2018. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time. You've never tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. 
but unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home-free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.